0: Welcome to Witchlit, a place to talk about the craft of writing and writing the craft. I'm your host, Victoria Rashke, author, publisher, witch, and nosy Scorpio. Witchlit is a production of Thousand Volt Press. Our small press publishes books we want to see in the world, including Changing Paths by Yvonne Abreu, Conjuring the Commonplace by Lane Fuller and Corey Thomas Hutchison of New World Witchery Podcast, and Verona Green, my latest book. Find out more about us and purchase these and other titles at thousandvoltpress.com. Linda Radish has been contributing crafts, recipes, and ethnobotanical lore to Llewellyn's Herbal Almanac since 2012. She is the author of The Old Magic of Christmas and The Lore of Old Elfland. Her two newest releases are The Secret History of Christmas Baking and Turn Left at the Moon Crow Skeleton, a science fantasy novel. Outside the kitchen, she has special interests in paper crafts, minority languages, and exploring the suburban jungle. Linda Radish, welcome to Witchlet. Hi, thanks for having me. Happy to be yeah. here. Oh, I'm happy to have you here and talk writing and baking and Christmas and holidays and all kinds of stuff with you. But before we get to all that, uh, our traditional first question for everybody is, you know, in this age of diminishing readers, book bands, mm-hmm. <laughs> TikTok all of these things, why still write, why still write books?
1: Um, For my part is because I have to. Um, I would just be a miserable lump of a person if I couldn't write. I know I shouldn't write. Most people shouldn't write. Like when people say, oh, I'd love to write a book someday. I'm like, don't, don't. (laughs) Um, And like the author, Louise Doughty, she wrote a book novel in a year. And um, she says in it, like, don't do this. There are other things, you spend time with your family, go on a trip, don't write. So really the only reason for writing is because you can't not write. Mm-hmm. And if you can't not write, there's just nothing you can do about it.
0: It's true. It will yep. dog you <laughs> until you do it. Mm-hmm. I try to convince and myself for a few years I wasn't a writer and did not succeed.
1: I went through like a period after my son was born... No, I was writing nonfiction, so I was able to live just writing nonfiction, um, and I thought I could be happy doing just that. But it didn't last. I still very much enjoy writing nonfiction, mm-hmm. uh, but then I had to go back to. I uh, started writing little ghost stories, and it just blew up from there. <laughs>
0: so started so innocently. Yeah, mm-hmm. <laughs> right. Right. Um, so I kind of wanted. I, You have been publishing for a while and I want to talk about your publishing journey, but I feel like most listeners are probably going to know the old magic of Christmas. I mean, it is kind of your famous book, I guess, in, in, in witchy circles. Um, so how did that come about? Like what was the arc to getting there? I guess. Um, so the first, the first thing I ever wrote professionally
1: was, um, I ghost wrote, no pun intended, a book called Celebrate Halloween, which is officially by Wendy Mass. But because she now has a successful fiction, middle grade fiction career, she's given me permission to say I wrote most of it, like I think all but one chapter, um, at a time when uh, we were both at different stages of pregnancy journeys and financial need journeys, and where one of us, was having trouble the other one was doing well and so it was a good time for me to to take over this this job for her mm-hmm. and and make some money so it was when i was pregnant with my my younger child i ghost wrote this book celebrate halloween and uh she gave me a stack of stack of books a stack of photocopies that you know she had gathered as resources and one of them was um It was a Halloween book by Silver Ravenwolf. And I thought, oh, this is a fun book. And it would be fun to write a book like this about Walpurgis Night. So after Celebrate Halloween, I proposed to Llewellyn a book about Walpurgis Night, which is the European Halloween. And um, they took it. They were only the second um, publisher I queried. They took it, which is that's really great to query to only two publishers, I think, because it was like I knew exactly it was a small market for this book. And I knew exactly which publishers to query. There aren't many. Mm -hmm. Um, So that was my first book. And that did that wasn't that was in print for several years. And so it did okay. And then um, I wanted to do Christmas because I when I was researching the Walt Night book, um, Night of the Witches, I came across a lot of spooky, cool Christmas traditions and i've always been fascinated i've been making my own christmas cards since i was 13 so i'm always like looking for cool traditions to illustrate on the Mm -hmm. cards so that was right up my alley that was the book that i would have wanted to read when i was 13 um and that one did really well it's still in print um hopefully it'll stay in print for another few years and then there were there were I think two manuscripts and one was almost finished that Llewellyn said, no thanks. Uh, Like one proposal, one almost complete manuscript. They said, nah. Um, So that's, and and then I wrote one on elves and the general public said, nah. And then I thought, well, maybe I'll try another Christmas book. Mm. And it did. And um, so far, so far so good. It just came out in September. Mm. Um, So... Yeah, so I write, I find an interest a subject that I'm interested in, I propose it, my editor accepts it, and then I have to find out all about it and do the research. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Um, what is the the other advice is right about what you want to know about, not what you already know, right? What yeah, you want to know about.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And Neil Gaiman says, trust your obsessions. Mm-hmm. So if you have a subject in mind and you think, oh, I I want to write a book about Pennsylvania Dutch hex signs, but then I'm going to have to write, read a lot of books about it, then it's not for you. If right. you find yourself like devouring books about Pennsylvania Dutch folk art and you're like, I should rationalize why I'm reading so much. Oh, maybe I should write a book about it. Yeah. It's like
0: that. Yeah. So trust your obsessions. I love that. I it's funny you're saying Neil Gaiman. I swear his name comes up on every episode. Well, he's the guy. He's the man, right? I know I'm just like, maybe if we invoke him enough, I can get him on the show. Oh, maybe. I sent him I wrote a little um fantasy
1: novella I self because Llewellyn rejected two of my manuscripts because they said it's too many. I had it in a fictional framework. There's too many fictional elements. Mm. So back in the days when they had Amazon create space, I thought, let me get it out of my system. And I wrote a spooky little fantasy novella and I sent him a copy because you can send him your books. And but somehow, like, it's like the address is not really, it's like to his cat. Like you would address it to his cat somehow. Um, so I did send him, I did send Neil a copy of my novella. I didn't, I didn't hear anything.
0: <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I can only imagine how many books his cat gets um <laughs> right i went i when we still lived in nashville so it has been a few years ago uh he read at the uh war auditorium mm-hmm. from ocean at the end of the lane
1: and it I was the last
0: movie. tour that he signed books on while he was Oh, he doesn't anymore not on the tours i think tours. okay um there were just too many people. Like it was, there were, you know, thousands, like a thousand people and everybody wanted books signed. So we stood in line and we got our books signed and I had like thought about like, what are you going to say? And then I just stood there, you know, completely unable to speak. Like Ralphie in a Christmas story. Yeah. I just felt completely <laughs> <laughs> like overwhelmed. And I've, I, I mean, I've worked around celebrities like in my jobs like I've you know I'm usually not someone who gets tongue-tied with famous people mm-hmm. could not speak and I, I yeah blew my opportunity you know so.
1: well I'm sure he probably prefers you don't speak I would imagine I can't yeah
0: I mean yeah yeah I'm sure we'll just like, move along. yeah I mean I do I love that on social media he's very responsive to questions and, and stuff like that I feel like that's probably better for him to have some distance (laughs) probably. Yeah. Yeah. I can't imagine what his uh, overall fan base, what that's like to manage that emotionally. So I think, yeah, you have to, you have to distance yourself.
1: Just split yourself in two. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. I don't have have that problem. (laughs) Yeah. I, yeah. I kind of, you know, it's funny. I think about like very famous people, don't belong to themselves anymore and i'm like right. i don't know that i ever really want that like that doesn't really appeal to me they are a pr- they, in that sense they're a product
1: that we consume mm-hmm. um so if we consume respectfully that that said like i'm a massive fangirl with uh, my like my biggest as you call it fangirl squee moment mm-hmm. was <laughs> last year um so my favorite musician is Vlasta He's a Czech singer and and musician. He won the um, 2005 Czech Television Superstar, which is their American Idol. Mm-hmm. And um, I messaged him on Instagram, like in international English, mm-hmm. so that he could easily translate it in, in in you know in, in Instagram. And I said, "I love your music. Um, I've written a Christmas book. It's been translated into Czech." I would love to send you a copy. And he said, no, no, I have just ordered it. When you come to Czech Republic, you can sign it for me. Aww. And he sent me a picture and he posted it on his account of him standing next to it in front of his Christmas tree, which his um, wife had decorated beautifully. And he's holding the Czech translation of my Aww, book. And he wrote a so thing cool. about how, you know... Um, you know, writing and music, bridges, cultures, and so that's on my Instagram. Yeah, that uh, was amazing. my that was my proudest moment. Uh-huh. So yeah, I'm like a huge fangirl.
0: Yeah, yeah, I things. yeah, I'm always like, love the things you love. You know, like I this I'm not about being cynical. I, you know, or above being a fangirl, I guess. <laughs> well, you know, we
1: have to get our inspiration. Yeah,
0: you know yeah so i i when you said you wish that you had had the old badge of christmas to read when you were 13 it's like Mm -hmm. i'm obsessed with christmas like the history of christmas and so obviously when i found your book that's why i would i emailed you would you like to be on the show and i i for listeners i did fangirl squeak when linda said yes um (laughs) so because I love this book so much. And I also love the Walpurgis Knight book. Um, So I was so excited to read The Secret Baking of Christmas, uh, Secret History of Christmas Baking. And I was not disappointed in any way, shape or form. This was great. I'm glad. glad. I also have to tell you that my entire family got a chuckle out of the black cake section. My husband is from Trinidad (gasps) and we Uh were making uh the fruits for black cake while I was reading your book. (laughs) Oh, okay. So how long did you let them go? So- traditionally we use his grandmother Winifred we use her recipe she's Jamaican actually his his mother was Jamaican Mm -hmm. and um so traditionally she ground the fruits for next Christmas so they would Mm -hmm. go a whole year we have never do that and we don't grind the fruits first because we don't have a meat grinder Mm -hmm. so um we soak them first and then grind them in the food processor because they're that's what I did
1: even though Wayne said grind the fruits first but I'm Mm -hmm. like Wayne, I just want to get the fruits and the drink. Yeah.
0: Yeah. You really have to have like a old fashioned like cast iron or cast aluminum meat grinder to really do it well without just tearing up something. Once they're completely soused, it's easier to put them mm-hmm. in a in a, a blender. Yeah. Oh, well,
1: yeah. But I'm Wayne was kinda like, you know, because everybody has their own recipe and mm-hmm. you know their own grandma's way of of doing it. And I I sent him pictures when I heated the molasses and he said, we so like pour, so pour the water in very slowly. And I forgot that. And I sent him a picture of the
0: stovetop.
1: <laughs> so yeah. I guess I forgot to do it. We slowly. do not.
0: So my husband cooks Trinidadian food and he, he makes the browning in the pan. Like when he does do mm-hmm. chicken and stuff like that.
1: I did. I did do chicken in the, in the pan mm-hmm. after I made the black cake. Yeah.
0: But for black cake, we actually buy pre-made browning at the Caribbean market. Just because yeah. we make a giant batch and it takes so much, we'd have to burn like a whole pound of sugar, which makes sure. me a little nervous. Mm-hmm. So, so yeah. we buy it pre made. And also, it was funny because I was reading the recipe to my husband. He was like, almonds? What kind of sacrilege is that? And I was like, she says in the book that every family does it differently. I do. Yeah. Cause I knew I was going to get, and I it was going to get pushback on that. Yes. Yeah. And, and I'm a novice at it. So, but yeah. Yeah. He, um, Our recipe doesn't have, has no spices in it. No spices at all. No spices. It has a lime zest. Mm -hmm. And instead of just rum, the fruits are also soaked in wine and you're supposed to use Passover wine but we don't we usually use a Beaujolais mm-hmm. or a Bordeaux I wonder why that why Passover wine is it I don't know food? I don't know is if that it was just it? the way the recipe was written or that's what they could get like that's I'm not really interesting. sure
1: why I wish I had talked to you before I wrote it because I mm-hmm. might have put that in as a little aside we might have yeah. like gone down that research rabbit hole and found out oh wow.
0: yeah and it um we the first time we made it so we got the recipe his uh mother got his grandmother to tell him how to make it because she didn't have the recipe written down and so we got it the first year and realized that something had been left out like the texture was right but they weren't dark enough and she'd forgotten those grandmothers
1: right those grandmothers
0: who never write anything there's a there's a whole long story that someday may make it into a book about the black cakes and Keifel's family but um it's and so we we it took us about 3 years to actually get to the real recipe of the cakes. Uh-huh. <laughs> and then and so now we make the that's kind of our main gift at Christmas is we make this giant batch of black cake and and give them away. And I suggested one year that if we were giving them away, we should make small ones. And mm-hmm. like the the fancy, um like the baby panettone wrappers, like the little. Oh,
2: OK. Yeah.
0: Yeah. And he kind of poo pooed me. It's like, that's not how it's done. You just give people a slice. You don't, you know, make them an individual one. And Does it, do that, you do the marzipan and the, the white frosting? So traditionally for them, it's not made that way at Christmas. That's only for weddings. For weddings. OK. Mm-hmm. Like it's served without any kind of frosting mm-hmm. for Christmas. And then it is continually soaked in rum. So it is super boozy. But uh, we did finally make the small ones. And now he's like, okay, this was a good innovation. And we like them because the texture is a little different when you make them small. Mm-hmm. So we do that every year. And it's a little easier to give them away than having to cut slices yeah. for people. So I've heard that like if you buy one, it's like 50 bucks. If you buy yeah, can I can only imagine because we spent probably at least that, if not more, on fruit, just on the dried fruit. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Have you read the novel Black Cake by Charlotte Wilkerson? No, I have it in my Kindle. It is in my uh I'm it's not reading one. for a podcast month. <laughs>
1: okay. And I just saw a trailer. Somebody, I forget who, somebody's made it into a series. Oh, cool. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm interested. Um, but I can already tell in the trailer they they changed some things that were but oh. it's good. It's suspense. It's suspenseful. It's a
0: family saga and it's mm-hmm. it's a
1: murder mystery that's in, yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. The story of black kick in my husband's family is definitely a family saga, not a murder mystery, though. I think there were a okay. couple of years that came close. So. Uh-oh. Uh-oh. <laughs> but yeah. But yeah, So it was just funny to read that while I was while we were doing it. And I was like, oh, see all these these lines of like tradition. And I mean, I, I love that. And it's one of the things I love about writing is like the research and finding those stories.
1: And I was blown away because like now I know that it's like this big cult- cultural institution. But before I met Wayne at that, my friend's cookout, I had never heard of black cake. Mm. He just it just happened to come. We were talking about baking and he's like, oh, are you? have you heard of the black cake. And I'm like, what? 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 Do tell.
0: Yeah, I tried to make one when we first when my husband and I were dating before we got married because I'd read about it. Lori Colwin has a black cake story in one of her home cooking books. Mm-hmm. And then I think in Nigella Lawson's "How to Be a Domestic Goddess" book, there's also a black cake recipe that was like a friend of hers, and so I made that one. And it has the marzipan and the fondant, and I made mm-hmm. fondant myself. I didn't know that it was supposed to be hard. To oh, make my own! <laughs> mm-hmm. And so a friend of his came to see me for Christmas. He was in Trinidad, but a friend of his came to see me in this in where I was in the States and I served her a piece of this cake and she was like, this is not black cake.
1: (laughs) And I was like, okay. (laughs) And mine really, my first effort came out too red. Mm. It was too, it was like a reddish Brown. It looked more like almost more like red velvet cake. Mm -hmm. Um, Yeah. So it's not my best recipe and I probably won't make it again it's a lot of work maybe once more because I do still have some fruits going
0: yeah and Um, I do love fruit. like I grew up I grew up in a household that made its own fruitcake like when fruitcake was one of my dad's favorite things so we had fruitcake a lot when I was a kid I was never anti-fruitcake my sister loved fruitcake but we we
1: never made it she Mm -hmm. liked the Claxton's and I talk about like loyalty brand Mm -hmm. loyalty to your
0: fruitcake in the book yeah i don't like the green cherries either i don't like claxton's one (laughs) no
1: yeah 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 but i and i think it's important people um should not feel guilty about buying christmas baking don't feel guilty it's something that's Mm -hmm. always been done it's only recently really that because in the middle ages and this book has a much old magic of christmas is more of a rural feel rural traditions Mm -hmm. agricultural tradition this is much more urban one and um, in the Middle Ages, you you would not bake this stuff at home in the Middle mm-hmm. Ages. And even like even when my mom was growing up in Germany, um, especially after the war, you would not bake in your own home. You would put a cake together and then you would go get in line at the bakery. And when it was your turn, he puts it in for you and you come back in 45 minutes and you pick up your cake because there just wasn't enough fuel. For Mm -hmm. everybody to be running their own ovens. And yeah, in the Middle Ages, if you had you didn't have people didn't have in the cities have their own ovens, you would get it all from the baker.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I mean, in some ways it's weird to me, like we've modernized a lot of things and then we've gone back to do it yourself and others. Mm -hmm. And like baking is kind of one of those we've gone to do it yourself.
1: Yeah. I think in America, Mm -hmm. um, we really had to because there there was no were no bakeries, Mm -hmm. you know, in the beginning. So we had to do it ourselves.
0: Yeah. Yeah, we're so lucky here. Um in the Bay Area, we have a German bakery called Backhaus. Oh, yes. Back Backhaus? Yep, Backhaus. Yeah, Backhaus. Yes. And um they make a porridge bread that I am having a secret love affair with. A porridge <laughs> so, bread? I've never heard of that. Yeah, so it's an oatmeal bread with whole dates in it. Uh-huh. That is just mm. it's so moist and che- the crust is really chewy. And because I just love like dark German breads, like those are my favorite breads. It, it's maybe genetic, I don't know, but uh, it's them.
1: probably not because I don't like, like, my mother loves the, it's a, it's like, it's square. Oh, and very the thin really thin. Slices, mm, I love and it. it. It's I like love so it so much. Dense and,
0: and a little bitter. And,
1: a little bit i just Mm -hmm. don't like it like all you can do you can put like a lot of butter a lot of cheese on it and and then try to choke Mm -hmm. it down it's just so dense it's not for me it's almost just it has like a sweet
0: because there's like whole seeds in there Mm -hmm. so like a sweet mealy i don't like it yeah i like those and i love like swedish cracker bread and my, my family just makes fun of me all the time because they're like you eat cardboard and i was like it is not cardboard It's delicious." So you have to put a lot of butter on it, though. You do have to fill up, or yeah, you know, I really like Clark or ricotta on it too. Oh, okay, yeah, really nice.
1: we were able to find quark here in the Stop and Shop for a brief, happy period of time, and then they stopped carrying it. So I usually use the Friendship Farmers cheese mm-hmm. instead.
0: Yeah, it's pretty even close. I think that's higher in fat. Quark has almost no fat. Yeah, it's pretty. Yeah, I was thinking of it as like a, it's like the healthy cheese. I think mm-hmm. kind of yeah. yes yeah also yeah oh um yeah I oh, oh. so for listeners it's like clearly this has turned into a cooking podcast <laughs> well we're talking about food yes and writing about food um I do I am curious because I wrote a companion cookbook for my first series and had to do recipe testing so I'm curious mm-hmm. like how you how you developed those recipes and what you did for recipe testing
1: oh my goodness um well uh so i work at a library and we have a staff room table and people are always hungry so i brought <laughs> in a lot of uh my first attempt at Elisenlebkuchen was the the candy peel got hard oh. in it got too hard in it so like i brought them in I'm like they taste really good just be careful chewing because the the peel is really hard <laughs> um so yeah friends and family co-workers testing and it's just a relief i'm really looking forward to christmas baking this year because i can just do what i want and innovate and not have to write anything down it's the thing the experimenting is fun but you got you have to write everything down so that when that didn't work you know why or what it you know was why or, yeah. and you go back and you write it down again and i usually if it's not um the ones where were not family recipes i would look at at least three different recipes and, and go from, you know, take what I liked from each of them. And if they had like really hard to find um, ingredients like citron, you can't get candied citron here. I haven't been able to find it. Mm -hmm. Um, My mom was always able to find it, um, but I can't find it. So instead of citron, we have orange and candied orange and lemon peel. Mm -hmm that's what we usually
0: use for citron too i yeah i used to be able to get it and i don't know if it's just like people don't yeah make those kind of things anymore so it's gotten harder to get and ordering stuff from the eu is so expensive now that it's Mm -hmm. just not worth ordering it from overseas so yeah
1: so i tried to find um and also it was hard i was working on this
2: trying to remember
1: yeah, my I had to wait like my when my son went back to school because they were at home during the lockdown mm-hmm. for most of 2020, and and at that time the only Wi-Fi we had was through the kitchen window, so he set up shop. School was in the kitchen, so I had to wait till he went back to school. To I was doing the research while he was still haunting my kitchen, and then <laughs> when he went back to school, and there would be like you know uh so you know there's a lump of um which was it the the Polish piernicki dough on the you know on the kitchen shelf for four days aging and um the I had to put for the elisenlebkuchen you uh, you put the balls of it on flatten them onto the the Oblatin, the wafers and then they have to sit for at least 24 hours. And my son's bedroom is the only room where the door latches, mm-hmm. meaning the only room where the cat can't get in. Mm-hmm. So he had to sleep with trays of
0: leaves and they poop and drying <laughs> his bedroom. Yeah, I was thinking about that. I was like, where would we even put that? We had a hard time finding a place to put all the black fruit this year. We just moved into a new house mm-hmm. and um, it is on top of the hutch because we also live with cats. Yeah.
1: I have, um, I do mine, I age my fruits in. I have, uh, it's from the Chinese grocery store. It's a ceramic canister, and then it has like two lids, mm-hmm. but they don't screw on. You just fit them over, which is Wayne said don't put it in a container with a lid that screws. Yeah. Put it in the lid that can blow off if it needs to blow off. <laughs> better that than an exploding
0: jar yeah ours there in cracker jars that have the aluminum screw on lids but they don't they're not airtight but then they and they okay. you, you can pull them off if, if okay. you really tried because they're not yeah. they just kind of sit on there and mm-hmm. there's a lot of space in there but um yeah yeah it's it's an inventor like and ours aren't aging long enough that I'm as worried about that. Like, if you do it for a whole year, mm-hmm. you really have to be careful about I do still have some. some, kind some
1: of... I, I chickened out and I put, them, put it in the refrigerator. Mm-hmm. So, I do ha- have some fruits that have been eight months in the refrigerator. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah. The, the one time that we did it for a whole year, I left it in the refrigerator just out of nervousness, too. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Because we're, I mean, if you can do it in Trinidad,
1: where probably not everybody has central air, it's probably going to be okay. (laughs) And my grandmother, she would make um, a Rumpot, for Rumpot in Low German, um, where she would just layer the fruits as they came in season. She would Mm -hmm. put them in this jar and she would just layer with rum and sugar. You know, when strawberries came out, put them in rum sugar, peaches are out, slice them up, put them in rum sugar. And then by Christmas time, it was all... uh, sticky goo Mm
2: -hmm.
1: and she would either eat it with ice cream or just eat it
2: Mm
0: -hmm. it's just there's so many rabbit holes to go down one of the things and Linda and I talked about this a little bit before we started talking um, like the like every time I read a book now like I'm I'm almost like jonesing to get to the bibliography because I want to go see like what I need Mm -hmm. to go find to go look at And so a lot of the highlights on my uh, e-galley of your book are like, oh, gosh, I need to track this book down. Yeah, I want people to,
1: I want people to look at, um, you know, look at the sources, go read those books, go Mm -hmm. to those sites. And uh, because like, I really, it was hard to get deep into anything because it was, you know, there are so many routes. Mm -hmm. So I hope some people will like pick one route that Mm -hmm. really resonates with them
0: and, and go down that rabbit hole. Yeah. Well, and I like, I thought it was smart because I think if you're talking, especially about like European Christmas traditions, like each country has its own. And then each kind of sub-region of countries and different ethnicities and different countries all have their own to go. I'm mostly going to talk about like German, Czech, Italian. And it was Mm -hmm. funny when you said the study side of the Alps, I was like, oh, she's going to Slovenia because that was their travel thing for years and years. (laughs) Yeah. So how did you get, I was into, how did you get started going to Slovenia? I'm intrigued. So when I was in college, um, I did my undergraduate degree in creative writing poetry, and my professor had been on a Fulbright to Yugoslavia in the 70s. So we did a cultural trip every year to Central and Eastern Europe, and we went to Slovenia uh, my freshman year, and I absolutely fell in love with it. And then my sophomore year, we had a, a chair of excellence who came from the university in Ljubljana to teach at my university for a year. and perhaps drunk at a party I said something about wanting to be an exchange student to Slovenia Mm -hmm. and that kind of snowballed into me and initially it was going to be a semester there wasn't a program set up with any American universities um because while I was in Slovenia the first time is when they declared independence so they didn't really have anything set up yet
1: my sister did that in Nepal she went to Nepal for five weeks when she arrived
0: they had a king Mm -hmm. When she left, they had no kings. Yeah. So, interesting time to be in Eastern Europe in, you know, 91. Mm. Oops. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, the war happened in Slovenia and then Mm -hmm. their war kind of was like two weeks. And then it was really Croatia and Bosnia. So, Mm -hmm. I was going to do a semester and it was just really no way to get, Through the whole language program in a semester, it was really a a two-semester program, and um, and I so I went the the following year after we had the chair of excellence on the cultural trip, and then I stayed for a year, and wow, went to university there, did the language program. Um, I worked. Um, I mean, I, I I hope there's you know like whatever the statute of limitations is. I worked illegally. Um, translate uh-huh. at, at translation first at the uh, news agency and then at a translation house um, editing English translations of like news articles that were going out on the wire um, mm-hmm. and you know just spent a year there and fell in love with the country the people the language everything and then um, I came back and I had a kid and I didn't get to go back for almost 20 years So,
1: but do you still have people there where they can go stay with? Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have friends there
0: and we went, I went back for the first time in 2014 and then we were going like every year and then COVID happened. So I haven't been since COVID, but Mm I, um, I'm jonesing to go back. Yeah.
1: I mentioned to my mom, I said, I'm reading a book that takes place in Slovenia. They're in a city. And I'm like, well, did she say live back? No, she said Ljubljana. Oh, okay. Yeah, and I said, "How do you?" She's like that. How do you? Mm -hmm. She's like when growing up in Germany, she it was known; it was a known city. Yeah, yeah. Because in German, it's Leibach. Yeah. Oh, it's Leibach. She knew Ljubljana. Yeah, but she reads books, so yeah, Leibach. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah, there's actually a very famous band, a Slovenian band named Leibach. That if you're into like weird industrial music, check them out.
1: (laughs) Okay, I'm not really, but. Uh, so, was there a German presence there that they would have a German name um, for it?
0: So, it was part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So, oh, okay. At one point, um, they were part so of Austrians that, Williams, and then yeah. yeah, and then you know, there's the whole thing with Trieste and the partition between Slovenia or Yugoslavia and Italy after World War One. There's like so. There's on the west part of the country. There's people who speak Italian and Slovenian on both sides of the border with Italy. Mm-hmm. And then on the eastern side in Prek Moria, there's uh, populations that speak Hungarian and Slovenian. Like, Slovenian has like 23 regional dialects, and the people who speak mm-hmm. the true dialect on the west of the country can't understand the people on the east of the country because they're so different. Uh-huh. So, it's
1: very because. So, how they, do they choose what, what's going to be official Slovenian? How do they so choose which it, dialect? It's to kind go of with?
0: the. I, I think like what's taught in schools is closest to the Ljubljana dialect. Like, that's. Mm-hmm. And that's what I studied and learned from mostly people, although one of my teachers actually was from Park Moria and she was ethnically Hungarian, I guess. Uh-huh. So there was like this weird, so we got a little bit of everything, but I, when I was a better speaker, like I can read a little bit now and I can kind of have very rudimentary conversations, but I just didn't have anybody to practice with. So I've lost a lot of it. It comes back when I'm there, like, you know, like it. Yeah, you have of, to get like, um, saturated. You got to get in, in yeah. the groove. It takes a while. But um, my, my, our friends that we usually stay with, they're from Maribor on the Austrian border. And he speaks German mm-hmm. and as well as Slovenian. But their accent is very, it's noticeably different from the okay. Lilliana accent.
1: And probably his German is Austrian German. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which has a, has yeah. a lilt to it. Yeah.
0: I love yeah. that. Yeah. It's fascinating to me. And I think, you know, part of the reason too, I think with countries in the Alpine region that there's so many dialects is because places were isolated too. Mm-hmm. So you also have this, like, you know, it happens in Appalachia too, like this kind of these pockets of, of linguistic ticks. You can tell which
1: village somebody is, mm-hmm. is from. Yeah. yeah. But then television comes along and television is, is like leveling Latin's everything out. Yep.
0: One of the things I always thought was interesting about um, when we lived in Slovenia is that um, unlike a lot of places in Europe, like Italy, especially that dub everything into Italian, uh-huh. Slovenia has always used subtitles. Subtitles. Mm-hmm. So it was actually super helpful as a language learner. Yeah, my German
1: relatives said, like in Scandinavia, they can speak English because the American shows are subtitled, but in Germany, they're dubbed because mm-hmm. Germany is known for doing like really, really good dubbing. Mm-hmm. Um, but that would, they don't hear the original. Yeah, Um, And when my my cousins come over, we're like, so what do you like to watch? And I'm I'm naming all the German shows and they're naming all the American shows. (laughs) You know, I like streaming German TV here and they're they're watching American TV on German television over Uh, there. Yeah. My
0: COVID project was to learn German. Oh, really? How'd it go? Um, so I'm Thank still you for learning German. I'm yeah. flattered when people want to learn German because it doesn't happen often. Yeah. Well, I felt, you know, I kind of went, went to a little bit going on this like ancestry journey. So I was like, you know what? I really want to learn German and, um, or Swedish. Cause my dad's family is German and mm-hmm. Swedish and German seemed a little bit easier than Swedish. I don't know if that's true. Uh, <laughs> so, I don't know, but there's definitely more speakers. So it, you know, yeah. the, the yeah. resources are better to learn German. So I'm I started with Duolingo and I've moved into like listening to podcasts and stuff. I'm I'm still very rudimentary. Like I think I have like about a 2000 word vocabulary. So let's well, start. I yeah. s-
1: I um I really improved my German watching. There's this cop show Along for Cobra Elf that it's broadcast in 120 countries. Mm-hmm. I think it's dubbed in most of them and I just love it. Um, it's like a car crash show (laughs) and it was just, it was the right level for me. Mm -hmm. And so like, I have all the DVDs of my, my favorites. It's been going on for over 20 years. So like my favorite. Did you
0: grow up speaking German with your
1: family? Not much. No, really. Um, the first time I went to Germany, I was six. Mm -hmm. Um, so I was still had a somewhat spongy brain, but we would only stay like a month. Yeah. And we would go every other year and we didn't speak it much at home because my father his parents were from Saxony, and they spoke dialect. Mm-hmm. So he spoke a little of that dialect. Then my mother came here. She, she came here when she was 17, and she spoke high German. She understood low German or Plädeutsch, Um, but she didn't really understand Saxon dialect. She was like very looked down on the Saxon dialect. And when she came, she stayed with um, a cousin and the cousin's friend, and they did not allow her to speak. German in the house uh, even though they both yeah. spoke German fluently um yeah. because that she was she had to learn English so it was English at home except for like she made sure we could pronounce like the u and the ch sound
2: mm-hmm. uh
1: so but I had to so when my daughter was seven I put her in German school and then I started figure I was dropping her off anyway I went to the adult classes so we did that for a few years um and then we went in 2018 and that was the first time that we didn't stay with relatives. We stayed in a little, a little hotel in Kiel. And that's when I realized that I don't really speak German, But I speak like <laughs> family German. Like I, they know they know what I'm going to say. I know what they're going to say.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so I'm like, crap, what am I going to do? And um, so I start, started watching this show and like writing down all the words mm-hmm. that I didn't know. And then looking them up so I can say, you know, like drop the weapon no no one gets useful hurt useful things useful, yes, things. useful yeah. things and so now i um oh now i'm into uh Show die the mountain rescuers which mm-hmm. is cooperative G- german austrian cooperative and it's about a mountain rescue team in the austrian alps in um Berg and so i watch that and sometimes i have the subtitle if i get lost i put the subtitles on mm-hmm. and i'm like okay that's what they're saying and um, it's like fairly simple storylines, yeah. Um, beautiful views. Mm-hmm. And that has a lot of, um, you know, Austrian German. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And you know, they yeah. say, yeah, instead of, yeah, it, I don't know, it would be in Heidemann, ich weiß nicht. And they're saying, ich weiß mm-hmm. And um, yeah. so it's, I just, yeah, I just love to see the dialects. And then um, if you ever want to join us uh, at one o'clock Eastern time on Instagram, Um, Lately, I haven't been able to go much because I've been working Friday afternoon. So it's every Friday, one o'clock Eastern American time. A bunch of us get together and on the Instagram live and speak. Oh, cool. And uh, they don't make as much fun of me as they used to. (laughs) Because, you know, I'm there's there's two other. They're American, but they're from um, they're from Germany. So they speak fluent Plotowich. Uh, most of them are in Germany. Mm-hmm. Um, so I was, at that time, I was the only American joining in. So I was a curiosity. Uh, and that's how I'm learning Plotowich, just from, like, listening. So you listen to them talking. and at first, I understood, like, only a quarter of what they were saying.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: But then I kind of get, like, what are they, who they are, what are they talking about? They're just ordinary mm-hmm. people. Like one guy, um, Nils, he he install solar panels. Um, Michael, he has a driving school. Um, mm-hmm. Then we had um, Yara Di Baba, who he's um, he's a television celebrity. He has a, a talk show. And he's actually, he was born in Ethiopia. He came to Germany when he was 10 as the, he and his family were political refugees. Mm-hmm. And he living in the village where he was, I think he already spoke some Plotowich. He learned Plotowich. He loves Plotowich. And he can even speak a bunch of different kinds of, of platoitsch. Like one time, you know, anybody who wants can, you know, ask to join mm-hmm. and, and then they'll bring you in. And somebody came in and he sees speaking, this guy's speaking. And I'm thinking, wow, his, his plot is even worse than mine. And then, and then Yahad starts speaking to him the same way. He was speaking Siberian platoitsch. Wow. Because there were a bunch of, Germans from northern Germany who emigrated to, I think, in the 1700s, they went and settled in, in Siberia. I think first in Russia, and then they were moved along to Siberia. Mm. And they still speak this different dialect. And Yahweh, like, he speaks ZB Zimbab- a wow. That's yeah. so cool. Yeah, so it's, it's cool. So, cool. so yeah, we, yeah, Oma Ani is the guru. She's um she's, uh, she's 84.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: And so she's kind of the linchpin of the group. It was her granddaughter who started it during during the lockdown you know, can't go out. Hey, let's do this. You know, maybe grandma wants to speak Plotowich with other people. Let's see who else is out there speaking Plotowich. And then it just like took off.
0: Oh, that's really cool. Yep. Yeah. It's funny to me, like when you said family German, um, the last time we were, last time I was in Germany, we stayed with friends and her mother doesn't really speak English. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, she can understand it a little bit, but she doesn't really where speak in it. Germany, Where in Germany were you? So we were in, um, Dortmund. Mm-hmm. And which is not where my family's from, but it's where I live. And um, it's actually a friend of my husband's before we were together. And we, um, I, her mom and I were alone and having a conversation kind of in like the little bit of German I knew, the little bit of English she knew, and wound up having this kind of deep conversation about like women in the church Oh wow. in Germany. <laughs> Like, it was not (laughs) like a, like, oh, what kind of bread do you make? It was like a kind Uh of deep conversation. And our friend Yana walks in the room and she was like, you two are talking to each other. (laughs) And so her, her mother is convinced that like my inner German just came out. And that was how I knew how to. Your inner German emerged. Yeah. Yeah. She was fascinated that my family was German. And I was like, "Mm, now that village is in Poland, you know, they were Pomeranian and, Mm -hmm. you know, so, yeah. 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 My aunt,
1: my uncle's wife my fraternal no maternal uncle's wife uh she was born and i asked her one time where were you born she said Poland, oh, <laughs> because where she was born is now now poland
2: mm-hmm.
1: um yeah because it went back and forth and back and
2: forth yeah
0: fascinating stuff and then you know like just i, I think was an excellent example of just like the rabbit holes of research like where you can go down and, and like minority languages i love that you have an interest in that because it fascinates me to you and I think in a different life, I would have been a linguist. They're very, they're very, very important
1: Um, Mm -hmm. because I just like, okay, so I'm learning low German because that was the language that my, I think it, my great grandparents were part of the last generation in our family that spoke it as a household language. Mm -hmm. My grandmother was very, she was like, you know, she was like, well, she was very urban you know, mm-hmm. let's speak Hochdeutsch, you know, she would have spoken it as a child, but, mm-hmm. you know, growing up in, in her apartment, it was just high German. So just the joy that it gives me to be able to learn my great grandparents' language and speak to other people in it is just like, we're not, you know, the low Germans are not a persecuted people mm-hmm. They're And, you know, but just, it means so much to me to be able to do that, that like people who are persecuted people whose language has been stamped out Mm -hmm. and that's tried to be erased for them to be able to bring that language back is just so important like they've done studies that um, native american tribes where the native language is still spoken on an everyday basis they have lower suicide rates than those where the language has been lost Mm-hmm. and when they when the tribe makes an effort to put the language back in start teaching the kids the native language the suicide rate goes down wow because it's yeah. just like language is so important to mm-hmm. identity
0: yeah it's it's important to identity and like how our brains work and i mean there's so much to it um when i was in slovenia and i was learning slovenian one of uh my friends is a sociologist and she and i were talking and she said when you start dreaming in slovenian you'll know that you've you've started yeah. to think in slovenian mm-hmm. and she said but always continue she said if you stay here which you know at one point i thought i might um you still need to read in your native language because your brain is wired that way and that's healthy for you to do that so it's kind of that same yeah. idea that very
1: yeah i think everyone should have a chance to flourish in their their own language mm-hmm. like here i think everything should be in english and spanish
0: Mm-hmm. Well, in California, it is. i mean, they're It is. That's good. Yeah. That's good. I mean, like at one. A work, lot of stuff in English and Spanish.
1: I'm the. I speak really sucky Spanish, but I'm the only one. So I'm <laughs> like, I've been pounding the Duolingo because we have people who come in and they only speak Spanish, and they should be able to. they should be able to do that because yeah. English is not the official language. Yeah. The United States does not have an official language.
0: I think a lot of people don't know that. That we don't a lot of an people don't language. know that.
1: Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah, it's been funny. We live in San Jose in a traditionally uh, Spanish speaking neighborhood. And a lot of the small businesses only have signs in Spanish and the mm-hmm. people who work in there only speak Spanish. So I have kitchen Spanish from working in kitchens and I took some uh-huh. Spanish in high school. Oh, okay. So I'm able to order and, and do things like that. But the first time my husband went in to get like tacos at this little taco down the street, um, mm-hmm. they brought somebody from the back who had enough English for him to order and he was like He said, you know, I could see how like somebody would be like, there could be a a backlash that's like, you're in America. But he said, I felt so good to walk in and realize I was the only person in that whole building who spoke English (laughs) and Mm -hmm. and know that this place was flourishing. He said, it was just really nice to have that experience. Um, But it's one thing I like about living here is that there are so many, I think there's a Japan town and a Korea town and, you know there's just all of these different places where people are living and working and speaking their their native languages so
1: yeah yeah my sister um she was she did like um she she died um several years ago but she did interior finishes very and like gilding very specialized stuff and she worked a few months in singapore on a job and one day she said she said it was like you know how we have starbucks on the corner they have diamond stores on the corner And she just decided one day, she's like, I'm going to walk until I find a place where nobody speaks English. Mm -hmm. And so she walked several, you know, many blocks and then she found like a little noodle place and she went in there and had to order with pointing and hand signs. Mm -hmm. And she was given, you know, she got her food and all went very well. She's like, I want to be somewhere where nobody speaks English. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where, yeah. To see like, because she wanted to know like, well, where am I actually? Because she just said it was weird. The TV in the hotel was all the shows that she had in America. The food in the refrigerator was all brands she knew from America.
0: She was like, mm-hmm. where am I? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, well, that's cool. Um, Speaking of research, and I guess kind of wrapping back around. Oh, should her. we go back to Christmas? Do we want to talk about Christmas? Well, I wanted to ask, because one of the things I thought was really interesting about the book is that um, when you you start, you talk about when you started, you didn't know how dark things would get. I did not. About about Christmas baking. And I just kind of Mm -hmm. wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about that.
1: Yeah. um, Sugar. Sugar. uh, Totally apart from being um, bad for you. Really kind of just destroyed the world. Um, The whole. You know, it was it was an it was like a little cottage industry in India, and then it was a slightly bigger cottage industry. Um, you know, during the the various Muslim early Muslim empires, that then you colonized the Mediterranean. But even then, they got it. it they were trying to grow the sugar in arid conditions, which is very difficult. Um, and that's when they started to use slave labor, often from West Africa. A lot of times, prisoners of war. Mm-hmm. um also some west africa and um then when we discovered the Mediter- the caribbean oh this is the perfect climate for growing sugar we can grow lots and lots of sugar but in order to do that because it's very labor intensive we need lots and lots of slaves mm-hmm. and especially the ones from west africa because they it's hard to do and they already know how to do it And the more sugar they sold, the more they wanted to grow, the more slaves they needed. And like Haiti, why is Haiti so poor? It's because after, you know, after they, they, the slaves revolted, they managed to found their own country, but they needed to have an economy. They needed to be able to trade and France fined them so heavily. They had to pay so much money to France in order to be able to trade. That it's they're still feeling it. That's Mm -hmm. why Haiti is so poor, because of the fines that were imposed on them. So it's just really turned the world upside down in a bad way. And we have not gotten out from under it yet.
0: Yeah. 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 And I mean, you know, sugar and the spice trade and chocolate. The spice trade. Ooh, ugly stuff.
1: It was hard. Okay. I want to say here that um I haven't been to the Netherlands. Mm-hmm. Been to I've been to a, um, the city, the town of um, Friedrichstadt in uh, far western Germany, which was founded by Dutch refugees from I forget from which conflict. Um, that the Never the Netherlands is a fine place. The Dutch are a fine people because I felt like I really came down hard on them. Mm-hmm. Um,
0: Dutch imperialism was ugly, though. I mean, there's no way around it. It
1: was. Yeah, Yeah. the Dutch East India Company did bad things, um, but they are the Dutch are now delving into that. Mm -hmm. Um, They're, you know, digging up these really horrible episodes that happened um, in the East Indies, Mm
2: -hmm. Uh,
1: you know, basically uh, genocide to keep hold, keep the stranglehold on the spices, Mm-hmm. Um and there are like people uh, Dutch and Indonesian groups working together to bring these stories to light and um the Black Peter tradition has taken a lot of criticism. I did a podcast um years ago for Old Magic of Christmas where I wanted to address the subject of Black Peter. I think the interviewer brought up Black Peter mm-hmm. and I said, "Yeah, that's it, it's a really controversial subject and she said oh that's just silly and moved on to something else and um so black peter is is a character who was traditionally quasi-traditionally represented in blackface like obviously Mm -hmm. um stereotypical over-the-top blackface um so i don't think that's what he was originally i think originally he was just a one of the many Dark-faced spirits of Christmas, where you you smear your face with ashes to express that you are not yourself. You're a creature from another world, maybe a messenger mm-hmm. from another world. Um, there's a lot of those in in that area in Germany and Belgium. Um, there's a husiker There's Knecht um, Ruprecht, um, but but he he kind of came to the fore as Saint Nicholas's sidekick at a time when when the dutch were losing their colonies Mm -hmm. and i think it was kind of to assert superiority you know the white saint nicholas he's a good guy and saint um, um, black peter is just like the the clown and yeah but they're they're finding ways to make him work because he's very popular and especially in the former dutch colonies in in south america they're finding ways to to make that uh, that character work because it's like well you you can have a certain character if there are no black children in in the classroom when Saint Nicholas and Black Peter come through but then when there actually are black children you need to look at things differently
2: mm-hmm.
1: so yeah. yeah so I think I think he's gonna he's gonna find
0: his way, in a way that to is acceptable his, to all yeah back to maybe like his origin point and not the character yeah. that came with enslavement and, mm-hmm. and colonialism yeah I yeah. know it's it's interesting stuff uh i also we talked a lot about christmas and obviously this is coming out on yule so Mm -hmm. merry yule to people but i also want to talk about your halloween book because this is your birth your first fiction book
1: it is it well kind of sort of i did the little the little fantasy novella Mm -hmm. um that sank without a sound um (laughs) It was an exercise. Beneath it was the fun. waves yeah. beneath the waves. I keep thinking like, all right, I'm going to take it out of print. Um, Cause you can do that with create space. Mm-hmm. Um, but then somebody will write a review, a nice yeah. review or somebody will actually like buy it. And they will like, Oh, okay. A little go a couple more months. Yeah. Um, so yes, this is my first full length novel. Not that I've written, but that I've felt that, okay, I'm ready to put it out mm-hmm. there.
0: So synopsis for listeners Synops- oh interest- god that i know it's the worst thing to ask a writer to do yeah know.
1: we hate we hate synopses um <laughs> okay so when i started taking this this is this has been through several different writing classes um we have an, a really good adult school by us and um the writing class that i'm in now i've taken like i take it like i'll go away for a semester and then i'll come back so but then I've taken other writing classes too. And one I went into a not revising your novel class. And the first uh, session, we kind of, you know, went around the room, tell us what your project is. And I said, writing a science fiction novel. It's kind of like The Martian Chronicles meets General Hospital. And it was crickets. They were like, oh. But the writing class that I stayed with, they laughed, and that mm-hmm. was the that was the uh, reaction. I wanted to get because that kind of is it's slice of life science fiction i love the martian chronicles i've read the martian like i don't know how many times i've read the martian chronicles um uh, but i can't write like ray bradbury
2: mm-hmm.
1: that's not my that's not my style um my i don't know what my style is maybe you'll be able to tell me um i'm only a chapter in so <laughs> you know, a chapter in um so they have it's uh we're on another planet it's far in the future and there are some big problems but there are also we talk about there was okay so one of my favorite ray Radbury one of my favorite parts of the martian chronicles which that was originally short stories they Mm -hmm. were published independently and then you put them all all together um there's one where these kids they're colonists on mars and these kids go out one day to play in the ruins and they in in the Martian Chronicles, the dead Martians just kind of turn like to ash. It's like dead leaves and ashes. That's their remains. And they go and they're playing amid these ashes of dead Mar- Martians. And they're having, you know, they're having a wild time, even though we, we know it's like, it's, this is kind of creepy. Um, And it mentions what kind of sandwiches they brought. And that's, that's mine. It's, it's, um that's what I like. It's, so it's a. We think that the original inhabitants of this planet are all dead, but hmm, are they? Mm-hmm. They've left some really cool ruins, but I always tell you what kind of sandwiches people
0: are eating. Yes. I love that. It's like that. <laughs> well, and for listeners, Linda is reading my book right now and there are a lot of sandwiches in it. <laughs> there are a
1: lot. So I'm I like telling myself, she must have worked in a kitchen. Yes. Or yes. in kitchens. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, there's a lot of like, you have to be eating when I'm when I I'm getting
0: hungry when
1: I'm reading your book.
0: Yeah, it was funny because a yeah. lot of people were like, okay, I want the recipe for Joe's brownies. And I was like, okay, well, it's not really, I mean, it's like based <laughs> on a uh, barefoot contest brownie recipe. So yeah, sure. So uh, during COVID, um, during the early part of COVID, I was like, okay, I'll just write the cookbook because I don't know what else to do with myself right now. And so mm-hmm. there is a cookbook to go with it, if people, you know, want to eat what they're eating in the books.
1: They sound like kind of labor intensive. Some of them,
0: are. yeah, some of them are. There's a little section about like what they eat at home in there too. So. Oh, and I've been casting it in my mind, mm-hmm. um, like because
1: as so I picture um Milo as as Tom Beck, who's a German actor. He's my favorite German actor. Mm-hmm. Picturing Milo as him, so I'm hoping I haven't finished. I just think Joe could be a little no nicer spoilers. to Milo, and then Igor—I don't know—was his name Igor? Who paints the? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Who comes and paints the cafe, um, the tea house? I'm picturing him as the German actor Sebastian Schröbel. I'm liking Igor. I wonder if Igor is going to come, come back, say nothing, <laughs> no comments, no comments. And right. I, what I like uh, with yours—you don't close the door as I close the door a little sooner than you do. Mm-hmm um there was a time I'm like please go to door, please go oh thank god she goes
0: (laughs) yeah it's funny I so uh I have a writer's group that are largely romance writers although a couple of them write other things too like some nonfiction and you know some other fiction and um but two of the well two of the people write like straight up erotica Mm -hmm. and then one of them writes very steamy like mm. reverse harem, you know, kind of stuff. So <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> among them, I am like the most vanilla writer. <laughs> but when I had a book reviewed professionally, they gave me like the steamiest level, which just shocked really? me. And the huh. reason was because uh, she has multiple partners. Not at the same time. I want to make that oh. really clear. Not at the same time, but because she's not in a monogamous relationship, relationship. and she's queer, I got the steamiest level. You know, I because I listened to the Alliance for
1: Independent Authors podcast, mm-hmm. and they have a sometimes they have a question and answer episode. And somebody wrote in, um, so when you publish with KDP, they ask, um, is there anything in in your book that is not suitable for eighteen and under? Mm-hmm. And the answer is, unless it's flat out erotica, don't check that box. Right. So this because person you'll was saying, disappear. Yeah. Yeah, but so this person writing in was saying, well, I've written a cozy mystery there's a couple swear words and some non-graphic representation of LGBTQ relationships. Mm-hmm. And I was like, lady, I'm thinking to myself as I'm listening, that's like saying there's some non-graphic representations of marriage. Mm-hmm. And I feel like if you think that having LGBTQ characters in your book would be unsuitable just having them in the book should be unsuitable for 18 under 18 then you probably shouldn't
0: be writing lgbtq characters yeah i kind of agree i was really surprised just to exist is not risque no your your existence is not risque and (sighs) um in fact i have had a friend say i really wish that the queer characters in your book had sex not because all the even the closed door sex is mostly between men and women, mm-hmm. and she's like none of your queer characters get it on, and I was like mm, you have a point, and mm-hmm. I, and like maybe that's something I need to think about. So yeah,
1: well I like so you have a lot of food in your book, mm-hmm. but but and this is the important thing so far, and I'm on did I get to page two hundred yet? I'm past the halfway mark. Mm-hmm. I don't think anyone has really enjoyed a meal yet and they never get to important. sit down and eat.
2: <laughs> yes,
0: because
1: sitting down and eating and having good sex stops the plot. Mm-hmm. It like it like would you say and she went to the bathroom and she sat down and she had a very good bowel movement. Mm-hmm. No, cuz nobody needs if it was good, you don't need to know that. Right. Yeah. So I I hate it when people it, that's one reason for me to close the book when when they describe the golden creamy wonderful things like why are you telling me this oh is it because like if you're going to tell me they're eating a wonderful meal then a bomb had better drop on the table (laughs) there has to be a reason so my my rules don't let your characters enjoy their food like when she makes those was it the twice baked souffles Mm -hmm. and then they burn and she has to dump them outside Mm -hmm. that's what food should be in fiction
0: yeah i I I mean it's supposed to draw the plot and i think for me like and, and you may find this too in your writing, it's like the thing you know the best that's like the closest to you is the, the thing that you kind of fall back in when you're writing and you don't know what to do. Because I don't, I don't, mm-hmm. I don't plot. I just go for my it. My
1: characters tell me,
0: my characters, they write my plot. Yeah. Yeah, they tell me what to do. <gasps> I I like it. Discovery writing, I prefer over pantser. <laughs> just, oh, a discovery writing.
1: I like yeah. that. Well, my main character, um is she's so they do have a university on this one one university on the planet where they live and um she's majoring in old earth feasts and festivals so that's kind of the link mm-hmm. to my non-fiction writing and the protagonist is a carpenter and here I am in my boss the cart the contractors the general contractors <laughs> office so yeah. and I would call him up and like what do you call this?" and mm-hmm. um how often do you go to the lumberyard? lumber, lumber yard? Yeah, no, it's good to have um, so real yeah, people
0: all... to talk to you. Yeah. I, and the thing I found when you're writing characters and you need to interview people is when, as soon as you tell them you're writing a book, they would love to talk to you about it because they love what they do. So they want to talk to you mm-hmm. about it. And then you get even better, interesting things to add things, to your writing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's, it's, it's a wonderful, I mean, I think that I love the research part. I mean, I enjoy writing to you, but the research is like just, you know, that little area to nerd out. It makes me really happy.
1: <laughs> mm-hmm. And you have to do research for fiction
0: mm-hmm.
1: too. It's just kind of like a different, uh, different kind of research.
0: Yeah. And I always think about like, I, you know, I find out these little things and especially when writing fiction, you can't put everything in. It's important that your reader knows that you know, but you can't put it all in. So, like I, I my just original didn't... manuscript was 240,000 words. Oh, wow. Yes. Yeah, and I am, was... I am not a doorstop writer. I about 80,000 words where my brain's like, "Okay, you're done." So,
1: I cut I cut a lot. But then the rule is you're not so your first novel, when I was still querying, when I was still trying to get an agent, trying to get an editor, um Thou shalt not write a first novel over a hundred thousand words. And I got it to like 150. And like, I don't want to cut anymore. And then mm-hmm. I thought, I always thought either it's a single volume or it's a trilogy. And I, people say, oh, that's three books. It's a trilogy. And I'm like, well, it's, it's not. And then it like one day, like three o'clock in the morning, I thought, wait, I could make it two. It could mm-hmm. be a duology. I found a duology is a thing. And it like, it was immediately clear where to cut it. Mm-hmm so now since i'm cutting it um the second volume is pretty much finished but i have to build out the front end and a, a lot of what i cut from the original door stopper some of that can come back into oh, the nice. second
0: volume yeah yeah that's why you never throw things away so i always away. they're all still there yeah yeah oh that's awesome um i like I said, I know you. Know, I could talk forever, and I try to keep the podcast to an hour, just because I feel like that's attention span for a podcast. Yeah. Um, so I want to give you, before we do our game of chance question, I want to give you an opportunity okay. to plug. Like I said, this will come out. Um, the Yule. novel is out.
1: The novel so this is out. The
0: pot. The episode. Yeah. Yeah. The episode comes yeah. out on Yule, and but your both of your books will be out. I mean, they're both out they're, now when we're recording. Yeah, so, mm-hmm. so. yeah. So let people know like how to find more of your work, if you want to be found. And uh, mm-hmm. if you've got anything coming up that people would be interested in.
1: Um, so, yeah, both books are on the the Llewellyn. My, my nonfiction books are published by Llewellyn. They can be found on Amazon. They could also be found um, other places. And uh, um, a woman in my neighborhood, she came into the library where I work and she told me she's working for Bowker. She was at the Frankfurt Book Fair and she said, my book is in some part of a program to like make books more accessible to independent bookstore owners. So my Ooh. secret history of Christmas baking stories and recipes from tomb offerings to gingerbread boys. I always want to say tomb robbers because there's a lot of tomb robbers also in the book. <laughs> yes. <It was> tomb <laughs> offerings to gingerbread boys mm-hmm. um, might actually be in the stores, which would be a first for me. Um, but you'll also get it directly from Llewellyn, Amazon, Barnes and Noble, all those things. And then my science fantasy novel, *Turn Left at the Moon* Pro Skeleton, is that's exclusive to Amazon because that was the only way I could do it. Um, so you can get that on Amazon Kindle or paperback. And if you, I have a little thing at the end that says, if you enjoyed this book, please consider writing a review. If you disliked it in interesting ways
2: please also consider write a writing a review
1: because yeah. what you <laughs> what one reader didn't like might be exactly what another reader is looking right. for. Yeah. Uh, so right. I'm on Instagram. Um Instagram at Linda radish is mostly my nonfiction and things I bake and walks I take. And um then for the science fiction,
0: it's Linda radish S F. Cool. Awesome. And that'll be in the show notes too. We'll put out links in the show notes for folks. So our last question is a game mm-hmm. of chance. Uh-oh. And I always Uh-oh. joke, um, I have leaned into being a Scorpio. So, but I also don't know how to do small talk very easily. I always want to know like people's dark secrets when I meet them. Uh-oh. So okay. uh, maybe, maybe it's brighter. Water. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's brighter brain, mm. um, but it, that's how my brain works. So the last question, um, I'll roll a die. Depending on what number you get, you'll get a question about death, sex, religion, politics, or money. And if I roll a six, you get to pick which one you want. Oh, okay. And you can say pass. No, I'm not going to do that. I'm not going to pass. Religion. Oh. Which is interesting. based on A book about Christmas that doesn't mm-hmm. really talk about like the, the Christian aspect of <laughs> it. It's more about the baking. But um, so one of the things I was thinking about, because you talk about this in the Old Magical Christmas and you talk about this in the new book, for you, like, I know you've done a lot of research around this. So what is the best Saint's Day for food?
1: Immediately, I thought St. Anne's Day, which is oh, December 4th. It's early, early in December, because that in Scandinavia is when you're supposed to start your Christmas baking.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: So. That's my knee jerk. Reaction.
0: Yeah. I'll
1: have to look that Saint one up. St isn't she's not in the book though she's mentioned in old magic of christmas mm-hmm. but um in secret Christ- history of christmas baking saint maurice and saint catherine really dominated it saint maurice mm-hmm. of thebes and saint catherine of alexandria
2: mm-hmm.
1: they just kept popping up over and over i yeah. even think um if you look at the cover in the lower right hand corner there is a figure who I, I sent um, my editor a picture. There is a statue of St. Maurice in a, in Magdeburg Cathedral in Germany. And I said, you know, this is St. Maurice, if anybody wants to put him on the cover. So yeah, he was from Thebes. He's traditionally um, portrayed as Black, as sub-Saharan. And so there is a dark-faced knight in chainmail in the lower right-hand corner. But he has, he's got a pinafore on, a pink pinafore on, and (laughs) hot mitts. And he's taking gingerbread boys out of the oven. And he's also got boobs. So it's like, is that St. Catherine in drag? (laughs) Or is it St. Maurice in drag? Or is it both of them?
0: I like that you have a drag saint either way on your cover.
1: I have Um, a drag saint. And those harpies, those harpies are, um, yeah, there's a lot of gender fluid There's always a lot of gender fluidity in Christmas Christmas costumes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Does that
0: answer the religion question? I I mean, yes, because it's you know, (laughs) there are no rules to this game. But I was thinking like there are some food associations with Saint Days that are kind of dark. Like I think is it I always forget if it's St. Agnes or St. Agatha that has the boobs on a platter. It's Saint Agatha, right? With the buns like Saint Agatha's buns or like St. Lucia has
1: Sometimes she's got her eyeballs on a platter, and then there's the Lucia buns on
0: December thirteenth. Yeah, but yeah,
1: there is another one with the boobs on the platter, but I don't know which one I
0: that is. Agatha, I'll have to look it up and Agatha. put it in the show notes because somebody is probably screaming right now that they know. Yeah. but there are like <laughs> buns made to look like the there boobs are? on the platter.
1: Yes, oh, yes. and there's um, the nuns in Sicily they would make mantipan. Um, like Mary's breasts and marzipan breasts with, with candied cherries mm-hmm. from the nipples. Yeah.
0: yeah. And I always think about the scene in Not nuns. a Saint Day, but in uh, mm. in the film Amadeus when um, Mozart's wife goes to... Constanza? Yes, when she yes. goes... Oh, God, the names are not... It's the F. Murray Abram okay, character. Um, um, salieri salieri thank you i'm yes. on fire today good i'm glad one of us one of us, is brain neurons are firing but she goes to salieri and he feeds through the nipples of venus like i am fascinated with like if i, I did catch there's he i remember through these like little, eating upon, yeah but, these little nipples oh. of venus and she gets all giggly because they're boozy or whatever yeah and, I um, if you go online there are so many interpretations of what they actually served in the movie versus what the actual thing probably looked like and it's apparently like this nerd out deep dive if anyone is interested really mm-hmm. were they made out of marzipan do you think i think the ones in the movie actually have white chocolate on the outside which would not okay. have been something that they would. I don't have think they did much chocolate. Then. Yeah. No. So, but so the original ones probably were marzipan. And yeah. Um, but it was really interesting to see that. Uh, I, I'm not the only person who learns out about food and movies. So.
1: No, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah, that's interesting. I didn't either. I had blocked it out that they were Venus's nipples, or I just did went over my head.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder, like, I wonder, like, what is the, like. The whole, like, I'm sure there's a whole dissertation to be written there about confections and in baked goods that look like breasts.
1: Yeah. And I just love that it was the nuns in Sicily making it. It's, yeah, really. Like that.
0: <laughs> That's a whole, whole interesting thing. But I hope yep. that people enjoyed listening to this. Um, our merry discussion on yule and we'll do some Christmas baking or think about these things so they do their Christmas baking or yule baking and or yule buying
1: yule buying is good mm -hmm. too
0: yes Mm -hmm. and I mean you know remember that you know traditionally in medieval times Christmas went till Candlemas so you've got plenty of time Mm -hmm. (laughs) but yeah basically St. Andrew's Day to Candlemas so Mm -hmm. yep plenty of time to get some more baking in or more buying in what's left eating yep awesome well linda thank you so much this has been a delight it was yeah this was a lot of fun awesome and hopefully we'll do it again too and i can't wait to finish your novel and um i can't wait to finish your novel maybe this (laughs) afternoon Witch Lit is a production of Thousand Volt Press and is edited by Julian Rashke. Our intro music is Cosmic Glow by Andrew Kay and our outro music is Voices by Alexander Shinnekar. Sue fortal edits our transcripts, which are available with all of our previous episodes at witchlitpod.com. You can follow us on Instagram and threads at witchlitpod. Please help other witches find us by leaving a rating or a view wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for listening to and reading Witchlet.